Two friends, Alan Dale and Jerry Carew, who grew up just a few streets apart in St. John's East End, have been separated by Canon's geography for three decades. They came together virtually during the pandemic to chat about like-minded interests. Alan lives in PEI and Jerry in Newfoundland. Thriving in remoteness has been a common theme for both of them during the pandemic. Gale Force wins. The podcast is the result. And welcome to Gale Force Wins. I'm Alan Dale, and with me as always, my good buddy from St. John's, Newfoundland, Jerry Carew. How are you, Jerry? I am really excited to talk to another friend of mine who I met many years ago working at The Telegram, an exceptional reporter who has transformed and pivoted himself into a CEO. Imagine that, folks. Reporter, CEO. I'm not going to steal his thunder. He's going to introduce himself. But uh, again, here we are, Alan, on another episode of Gale Force Winds. It's fantastic, Jerry. And the, throughout the pandemic, you and I talked a lot about, and indeed, I would argue, have pivoted and in many ways reinvented ourselves as we transited through the turbulent waters of the pandemic, came out the other end, and Gale Force Winds is actually a result of that. Pivoting and being able to uh, reinvent yourself is a very important thing to do, I believe, in business. And uh, that's what helps people be successful in many respects. We're certainly uh, excited to learn a little bit about that uh, from our next guest, who is indeed uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Baffin Fisheries. And uh, we're excited to learn a lot more about him and exactly what they're doing at Baffin Fisheries. Uh, Chris, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. Thanks, Alan. Hello, Jerry. Um yeah, Chris Flanagan from Baffin Fisheries, but I, uh, I remember well, Jerry, our days of the Telegram in the uh, late 90s, I'd say the last glory days of print journalism, yes. uh, probably anywhere. Um, it was, I, that's where I really, I think, learned to love business. I ended up as, a, as you probably remember, Jerry, business reporter, business, business editor at the Telegram, and uh, the, the transition into the business world came, came out of that. I, I remember at the time, I thought journalism was the greatest job you could possibly have, and it possibly was back then. I mean, imagine every day I'd get to call uh, different business leaders uh, and talk to them about what they were passionate about, about their successes and maybe in some cases uh, their failures, uh, which some were, were pleased to talk about. Even Danny Williams, I remember he gave me a great interview at a, a business that failed completely, and he learned a lot from it. Um, got to talk to premiers. Uh, you know, they read the paper every day, and so they'd pick up the phone whenever the uh, the business department from the Telegram called. So uh, and then you then you'd get you know to uh, use the left side of your brain and be creative in the afternoon and, and write this stuff up, and then start all over again the next day or or follow up on an issue. So uh, it, it was it was it was really enjoyable. The deadlines made it a little bit frenzied, and um, you know possibly the, the the greatest job I ever had until now. Chris, and, where, where did you come from originally? Oh, well, that's a very long story, but I, um, I grew up in Ottawa. Um, I actually, um, I actually th this is related to the story of how I made the transition. I started in geology um, at Ottawa U, and uh, I really wanted to move to Montreal, and the ge geology department wouldn't transfer credits from one province to another in Montreal, but the geography department would. So I ended up with a geography degree out of Montreal <clears throat> and then ended up moving to... Uh, to Nova Scotia for a journalism degree. And uh, long story short, went to Japan for a couple of years, got married over there uh, to, a, to a great woman from Newfoundland. 
came to Newfoundland for a couple of weeks in 1993 and uh, been there almost ever since. Well, listen, uh, this is not an uncommon story. I hear this a lot. Uh, We've interviewed a number of people that have found their way to Newfoundland that way, men and women, by the way. Uh, I often uh, tell people that I live in Prince Edward Island and uh, I married a girl from Prince Edward Island. I say, that's like marrying a vegetarian. It pretty much makes you a vegetarian. So I'm now uh, living in Prince Edward Island and loving it. That's a great story. So you find your way in Newfoundland. Uh, you're doing the journalism. Uh, you're in that world. That does sound like a fascinating world. Were you uh, Were you cutting stories? Like, were they hard stories? And uh, Tell me the type of journalism that you were doing. Well, I, did, I started out writing features for the Sunday paper, which was also a fantastic experience. So... Um, you know, there were, some, there were some great stories. And the one that got me into business was the Voises Bay discovery, the Voises Bay nickel discovery back in the, uh, in the late 90s. And uh, so, you know, I got a chance to fly up to Voises Bay with Mort Verbisky, um, uh, you know, the father of the prospector who found it. And, um, and we were there on the outcrop chipping away the rocks. They hadn't even finished exploration, hadn't really touched uh, on the, 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 the deep uh, ovoid exploration yet. And then I got back and started writing about Diamondfield, Diamondfield Resources, which owned it at the time, and Inco, which later took it over, and started to uh, cover their, their stock prices and how these were affected by the news and discoveries. And so got totally into business, and there wasn't really anyone covering Newfoundland publicly traded companies. So I, I kind of migrated into that niche, became a business uh, reporter and business editor. And uh, I, I did do a lot of fantastic stories. Um, and uh, as always... I, th- I thought the greatest lesson was, and this, this applies in business, was that uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. So I-, I was always asking questions. People used to call me like the Columbo of journalism <laughs> or business, right? Just one more question, right? And, and I find that a little different. When I'm around the table and there's a bunch of uh, business leaders, um, I, think, I think it makes some people feel vulnerable to, ask, to, to constantly be asking questions because it demonstrates to you that you don't know something. Mm-hmm. That's never really bothered me. So um, <clears throat> I do ask a lot of questions. I continue to ask a lot of questions. I work with people who are a whole lot smarter than me, particularly in areas of vessel engineering, uh, fishing, fishing techniques. And so I never shy away from asking questions, and I, I never did back then. Listen, you know, it, it's funny, right? I mean, it, it, there's the – I really appreciate that conversation. Vulnerability, all of those things resonate with me, uh, asking questions and wanting to hear – People want to talk. They certainly, and they want to tell you their story. I've, I've found, and the podcast is a great example of that. Tell me about, uh, in your opinion, as a journalist, now as a successful business person, the importance of listening, the, of actively listening, because that's a skill that I think sometimes is lost along the way. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And it's, it's probably even more lost now that we're all on Zoom calls and, um, you know, so-called multitasking. Because I think if you read the literature, you, you'll, you'll find out that the brain simply cannot focus on even two things at the same time. So if you're listening to somebody but checking your calendar at the same time, you're going you're gonna to miss a lot. And it, it, takes, it takes a lot of discipline. It's very difficult to do. I, I, I won't say that I'm an, I'm an expert at listening attentively, but I do have a few habits like taking notes. Uh, and I find if you write something down um, and, then, and then review it later or, or write it by hand and then type it up, it doesn't take long, but it really helps uh, reinforce it. And you never know when you're gonna be in another conversation and that little bit of information is gonna be invaluable to uh, decision-making or, or bringing people together. And, uh, and along with that is the, is the asking questions. Uh, sorry, is, is the, um, 
the having experts around you. So if, if you constantly rely on experts, you're going to surround yourself with people who have the right answers. And I, if you want to hear a good story of how I, I got into um, business, it, it started with CHC helicopters. And Craig Dobbin is a real link, I think, between um, surrounding yourself with the right people and, uh, and how that fits in the business world. So if you got a second, I'll just tell you how I went from, from yes. the Telegram to uh, tell us. helicopters. We want to hear that. CHC right. stands, for those who don't know, Canadian Helicopter Corporation. Yeah, or, or Craig has cash in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. or, or more aptly, Craig has credit at the initial that started it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had, I had a journalism prof way back when who said you should reinvent yourself every five years. And I, I really took that to heart, maybe a little too much. I think he meant within journalism, change your specialty. Um, but... I was at the Telegram and I was, as I, as I said, I was reporting on business. I was really looking forward to, uh, to, to trying to get into the business world. And one day, uh, well, I'll just let me back it up. I was covering CHC helicopters as they were about to acquire HSG helicopter, com- uh, helicopter services, which was the largest helicopter company in the world at the time. So imagine this, you know, we think oil prices are low today. Craig Dobbin, who was the, uh, you know, the founder and, and CEO and chairman of uh, CHC at the time, he had the most impeccable sense of timing you could imagine. Oil hit $8 a barrel when he was looking to buy HSG. Like we think it's low now, $8 a barrel. And um, he made a play for the company. And I was fascinated by this story and no one else was covering it. So uh, as I said, I got into stock prices. So I was, I was following um, uh, HSG on the Norwegian Stock Exchange and writing about this story almost every day. And I, I even wrote a feature for Canadian Business Magazine. And, uh, and was, I, I love the story. I get a call out of the blue from uh, Candace, Candace Mokler at CHC Helicopters. She says, Chris, come on and we want to tell you, uh, we, we want to talk to you about a story. And this was nothing new. Um, I don't know if you know the Craig Dobbin story, but he had a double lung transplant uh, when he was younger. And that was another great story. And uh, I'm, I'm going backwards here, but I, when he was down in the States for that double lung transplant, I called his brother Durham to say, look, Durham, anyone from the family can tell me about the operation, how it went. You know, it had, we knew it had happened that, that day, I think, or perhaps, perhaps the day before. So I, I left a message with Durham, if anyone could have a word to say. A couple hours later, the phone rings, and it's Craig Dobbin calling from his hospital bed in Philadelphia, just had a double lung transplant, and he just loved to talk to the media, he loved to tell a story. So I get this call uh, a, a year or so later after that when I'm doing the HSG story. I go in for this great story and it turns out they, uh, they want to offer me a job <laughs> as their first uh, manager of communications. And uh, so, you know, naturally I was extremely interested. Uh, tried to keep, to keep my cards close to my chest about how badly <laughs> I wanted this job. And uh, so I got hired and uh, very, very early on, I was in there and I made a joke to, uh, to some people in the room, including the CFO. I said, you guys only hired me to stop me from writing about you. <laughs> and they laughed so hard because it was absolutely true. <laughs> but Chris, I, I got to ask you a question about that because I have a you know, 30-year career in the, in the media as well. The transition from reporter into the business world, is, let's be frank, can be a little bit frowned upon by hardcore reporters and I think that's kind of what took me by surprise a little bit because you do tend to write critically of companies then to make that move 
to just, I just want to explore that a little bit. I know I can tell why you did it, I guess, but um, just explain that a little bit and how you felt, you know, did, did you get a lot of flack from your colleagues for making that onto the dark side? I think everyone used to call it, right? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of jokes about going to the dark side and even some, you know, congratulations on moving to the dark <laughs> side. I think the concern is it's almost looking backwards. Okay, so now you're working for these guys. Last week you were reporting on them. Were right. you really an objective reporter? Can you be trusted? Um, so I, I think with me, there was really a, a clean break. I got the call out of the blue. I made the move immediately. Uh, and also, I was writing pretty critically about uh, CHC helicopters when it, when it was warranted. And, um, and I think also I was, I was covering news that, that wasn't anywhere else. So I think people realized that I, you know, I certainly wasn't working for them as a journalist. And already, uh, already, Jerry, at the time, there were signs that journalism was, uh, uh, certainly print journalism was on a bit of a downward trend. So I was lucky in, in that respect that, that people thought I was, you know, making a good move there. Must have been incredibly exciting to be part of that company, though. Oh, that timing was unbelievable. They were, they were, they had $50 million market cap then. And um, to put it in perspective, a few years, a few years later, they were worth a billion. Wow. So, yeah, so they were buying a company almost twice their size. And uh, this was a Norwegian, subs, uh, a Norwegian company that had five or six subsidiaries in Australia, South Africa, Scotland, uh, Norway, of course. They had an air ambulance division. But it was a really tense time on the business front. And I'm so lucky. I got to sit in you know, the executive room many times uh, to learn about the, you know, the assets they had to dispose of almost immediately to meet their bank covenants. And uh, I just had a seat at the table for this fantastic stuff. And you know, big thanks to Craig Dobbin, who, who gave me the break and gave me the chance and, and let me learn, right? And, uh, and that's what I did there. I, I, I learned constantly. I was a sponge for knowledge. The communication side, I, I, I felt I could handle. And I, I think I did that pretty good. Uh, everything else was pretty new to me. And um, I used to write uh, these ads for Craig Dobbin. And I, I wrote his speeches too. And so one time Craig Dobbin asked me to write a speech for a convocation uh, for the graduating class uh, month business. And that was all he said. He said, write me a speech. No, not even a topic. So I went away and uh, I wasn't even a speech writer, but I, you know, I, of course, knew a little, lot about his business. So I wrote, I wrote this speech. I was pretty proud of it. I spent a lot of time on it. Brought it in. Craig Dobbin calls me and he said, he said, he said, Chris, I got to thank you for the speech. He said, now I know exactly what I don't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be kidding me. That's what he said. That's exactly what he said. Uh, so, Chris, you, you mentioned there that you thank Craig for, uh, for giving you a break. Sometimes you need a little break every now and then, right? Sometimes yeah. people might need a little break, somebody to take a chance on them, right? And, uh, and I think that a lot of... Uh, and particularly in Atlantic Canada, a lot of businesses are like that. They're willing to take a chance on somebody. They're willing to give somebody a little bit of a break and let's see where they go with this. And that's a, a very a nice way to put it. And uh, it's something that I, I hope somebody takes away from this conversation. So it wasn't a straight path, though, from uh, Canadian, uh, the, the Canadian helicopters into Baffin. What was next for you? Well, again, back to Craig Dobbin, he... Um he had an MBA program that I was fortunate enough to, uh, you know, to be the selected candidate. So the company moved us out to Vancouver in uh, 2004, and I was able to do my MBA at uh, Simon Fraser at that time. And that was, 
you know, that was the greatest learning experience and opportunity I've ever had. If anyone, if you get a chance to go back to school as, as an adult and working in, in teams like you do with your MBA, I mean, jump at it. It was, it was so worth it. And just, just one more story about Craig Dobbin. I remember I was writing his ads and he, um, we, we, I made this one ad, you know, it was Craig Dobbin business rule number 62 or something. I said, let's do a series of them. So when we had time to sit down, I said, let's, let's gather a whole bunch of business rules that you follow. Uh, and, he, and he thought about it. He said, there's only three. He said, and he said, and I, and I know them. And I, I remember them to this day. And uh, it, it was brilliant. So we didn't have a series of 62 business rules for Craig Dobbin. Those three. I don't know what order they in, but one of them was surround yourself with the best people you can. Work with people smarter than you. Surround yourself with the best. Um, <clears throat> a second one was don't take no for an answer. So be, uh, be uh, perseverant and, and keep pushing for what you know is right. And then the third one was a little bit interesting was time is the enemy. And that one, I guess, can mean a lot of things. But um, more than anything, I think it means take action when there's an opportunity, right? So th that was it. I mean, Craig Dobbins said he lived by those rules. And uh, you, when I think about it and all the decisions and all the breaks I've had, th those real rules do really apply to just about anything. So, uh, so, so take action. Yeah. Um, in 2007, it looked like CHC was going to go from becoming a public company to a private company. And after my MBA, my role was really in investor relations. I was, I was helping put together the annual reports. So uh, I was right working closely with the CFO, uh, done my accounting courses. And um, I, I really enjoyed the, the, the communicating to shareholders, financial information, um, and, and all of the required disclosures as well. But then CHC was going private. So that whole um, investor relations side was going to go away. And so I could see my job was, was going to be, wasn't going to be there as I envisioned. So there was a chance to come back to Newfoundland. And, uh, you know, Alan, you said earlier about marrying, marrying a Newfoundlander or someone from Atlantic Canada. Yeah. Like Newfoundland is home and there was no staying in BC. So it was a perfect chance to come home. We took the opportunity. I came back. Um, I worked for a marketing company. That was the, the job I had to come back to St. John's in 2007. But again, uh, opportunity knocked uh, from the pure business side. And um, I, I met a guy who was running a junior, um, a junior mining, but in the petroleum side, uh, exploration company. And they were exploring for oil on the west coast of Newfoundland, 2007. It was perfect time to get into that business. Yeah. But I think you all remember what happened after 2007. Yes, right. <laughs> so... Anyways, I got a chance to come back. My wife was thrilled. The family was very happy to return to uh, Newfoundland. Um, I realized that they were never going to uh, live anywhere else. So, <laughs> so neither was I. Um, but with this company, this junior exploration company, because I had, uh, you know, I, I also should say I had a little consulting business on the side and I did uh, public disclosure filing. So filings on the TSX, uh, the system called CDAR and so on. So I, I did know a fair bit about public companies. And I was working for this company, and I, and I, I felt they were, they were kind of missing. It was a very small company. They're missing a couple of opportunities, and they weren't fully engaging me. So this was a, the first taste I had of, um, of how to deal with a situation where maybe you feel your boss isn't doing enough for the company. I think everyone can relate to that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of things. Quite often, I, I've noticed it's true. There, there's, there's things that the, the CEO might not be aware of or the boss 
And there's opportunities for people underneath to, to bring those to the forefront. So in this case, uh, I did bring to the CEO, you know, ways I felt I could help the, the company perhaps acquire some partners and everything. And he, I, unfortunately, I, you know, I didn't get anywhere. I wasn't, I was met uh, with uh, resistance and uh, felt uh, disappointed in my job. I felt I wasn't really doing anything productive. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, I, I knew, I knew the major shareholder. He lived on my street. And so um, I made the mistake of going to him and suggesting that, you know, uh, CEO could engage me more. I wasn't being used fully and there's more I could do. Well, the next day, <laughs> the next day I got fired. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there's a real lesson to be learned there. It, there are ways to, um, um, you know, to, to work upward, I think, and to work with your boss. And you got to have a plan. And, and, and just pointing out to the owners or the shareholders that they think that things aren't being run well enough is not a plan. No. And that was a pretty harsh lesson for me. But, but anyways, you know, it was around the corner. It was 2008 and, uh, and all the crashes. And, and unfortunately, this junior mining company um, just ran out of cash. And that was the end of that. Yeah. It, it, back to that point uh, about, you know, the, trying to convince the CEO of, uh, your ideas and stuff. Back to Craig Dobbins point, right? Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Surround yourself with good people. But the other half of that is listen to them, right? <laughs> too, <laughs> too often people surround themselves with the best and the brightest, and then they don't even bother listening to them, right? So yeah. uh, that's a good point. Uh, so that so there you are, Jerry. You had a question. Well, yeah, before we get off the Craig Dobbin topic, uh, I mean, he's such an interesting one. And, and I do want to explore more, Chris, uh, I remember hearing Craig speak at an annual general meeting, I believe it was for his company. I think it might have been a week or two before he passed away. Do, were you around the company at that time? And am I right in saying that? Was that something he did? Just before he passed away, the company, the head office was still in Vancouver. Yeah. And he was in St. John's. So I, I remember coming back for the funeral and he had been back in St. John's for a while. So he may well have given a speech, but I wouldn't have been close to him in the last okay. uh, month before he passed away, unfortunately, because he was living in St. John's and he was, he was acting as chairman then, but not CEO any longer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He did speak, I believe at that meeting and, and it was, I could tell he was very frail. I ha heard a recording of it online and it's no longer, I can't find it. But anyway, I just thought there might be a little anecdote for our listeners on that. So oh, there's, a, there's a ton of anecdotes. <laughs> but it's nice, though, you know, when you hear you tell a story that because of your association with Craig and his setup, you became, you've, you've got your MBA. And that's been a, I guess, a springboard for where yeah, you are a, now, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's a great lesson, too, for companies that are willing to invest in people, right? They're willing to invest in them and allow them to grow. So there you are. So now you're at the tail end of that one company. You walk down the street. That didn't end so well, talking to the neighbor. So what's next for you? Where do you go then? Well, then um, I always have a plan B. I don't know if you ever yeah. saw the movie Rare Birds. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. You got to have a plan B. And so, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd been doing some regulatory filing for uh, other public companies. So I had a little consulting company. So after NWest, I started consulting. And I actually had, uh, I was very fortunate, I guess, with the timing. I had a very, very fairly good year uh, as a consultant. And um, 
my, my number one client ended up being um, what was WHSCC then, uh, work, Workplace NL or Workers' Comp. Right. They were, they, were, they were a great client, and I think they're a misunderstood organization. They're a very well-run organization, and I have uh, nothing but good things to say about, about that place. Uh, I know it can be tough on the uh, injured worker side because they've got to manage the uh, bottom line, right? They, they can only get revenue from, uh, from, from companies, so they have to be careful on how much goes out the other end. But at, um, they were my best, they, uh, best client, and then they, they ended up replacing the consulting side with a permanent position. So I had the choice of either losing 50% of my business as a consultant or having a, um, you know, applying for anyways, a, a reliable full-time job. We had five kids at home at the time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I really love this company. So I, I, I applied and was successful and, and ended up being um, uh, a director at, at, at uh, WHSCC. And uh, again, I had a, a team of about a dozen people and w- was fortunate to be on the executive committee which again, I got to say, was a fabulous learning experience. Um, and, and the characters I saw there and the people I saw there, like the, the, the deputy CEO um, was um, just an absolute uh, gentleman. And, and he's one of these leaders, you might've seen him before, calm in the midst of any storm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could have, we could have uh, protesters chaining themselves to the front door You'd have threats in the central office, uh, someone driving the car into the, into the front windows, and then you'd have all your fiscal challenges on the other side. Every meeting, you know, he ran absolute calm, and, and I learned a lot from that because I'm not naturally the calmest person. So, um, so, so that, was, that was a great experience there. And uh, from there, I, I moved to another government job um, at the Research Development Corporation, which was a bit of a better job and more exciting because they were working with every uh, research project, just about everyone in the province. And this really fascinated me. Most of their business was with uh, other companies, not, not so much on the uh, university research side. So you've got your undersea, your subsea research. You, you had all your high-tech companies in Newfoundland were, were working with RDC. And part of my job was promoting them. So it was a little bit back to the, um, you know, working with businesses, almost like journalism, but I was also engaged uh, on, 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 the, on the government and the financial side because there was a good bit of promotion about uh, you know, leveraging money and, uh, and helping these companies and, and seeing their finances and so on. So this was great, but uh, well, this, I mean, this, there's a bit of a broken record here. I think you, you guys remember what happened to RDC, right, uh, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So RDC was unfortunately uh, a victim of a government uh, government downsizing or cuts and I was the I was the harbinger of that uh, well basically they folded RDC and uh, you know at, at, that was really rough that was really rough to, to see what, that. what year was that Chris that was 2014 and end of 2014 2015 wow. so again luckily uh, plan B I had the consulting company and um, uh, I ended up getting uh, consulting, some consulting work with Baffin Fisheries. So we're finally getting to the uh, current position. So it was, uh, it was just before Christmas 2015. Uh, a friend of mine at Baffin Fisheries uh, told me they were, look, they were looking for some, it was actually some, some PR-related consulting because, uh, you know, there were some, some lot, lots of issues and publicity required. So, you know, um, took a look at the company, jumped to the chance to, to uh, work with them and help them out, met a wild cast of characters. 
and ended up uh, consulting uh, almost full time, uh, starting in January would have been 2016. And, um, and that quickly grew because I got an opportunity to travel to Nunavut. So Baffin Fisheries is owned by, uh, by five hunters and trappers associations in Nunavut uh, who are all uh, Inuit. So the, the shareholders are all Inuit beneficiaries. And I got to travel to, to Nunavut and what a fantastic experience uh, that was. Um, was that your first time traveling up north? It was, yeah. Tell me about that. So I, I, I want to go backwards, but I, but I want to go forward too. I, I, so before we move into that, I, I just want to say it's fascinating that you approached every one of your careers, your, uh, your opportunities as a building block. And that's the way you describe them. They're like a building block in the foundation of where you are right now. Uh, which is fa- it's a great lesson for people to take away. The other thing I find fascinating, you say, oh, I just revert it back to consulting. I'm a consultant. I know how hard it is to, ra- to ramp up a client. It doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of has to, you have to work a relationship over a long amount of time, but you seem to be able to kind of bring that consulting in and out when you need it, which is fantastic. Um, so th- that's to, to comment on where we just came from. Tell me about your first trip up north. That, how was that for you? What was that experience like? Well, the first one where I went to a, uh, a real uh, remote community, the community of Pond Inlet, which is absolutely uh, stunningly beautiful and, uh, and, and kind of cold. <laughs> My first trip there, Alan, was, I think, in uh, late January, early February. Hmm. And um, it's 24-hour darkness. It's uh, minus 40 all the time. And uh, it's just shockingly cold. And, uh, of course, there's... The people are traveling around on ATVs, maybe with a hat and, and no face mask. And they're living in this environment that I felt I could barely take a breath in. And they're, they're thriving and there is no problem. And I remember being shocked that um, you, I figured when you open your front door at minus 40, uh, you, you'd want to open it really quickly and let someone in. But you could open your door there and there's, there was almost zero wind at mm-hmm. minus 40. And so the air doesn't move around a lot. So you can open your door and the air does not, the cold air does not come rushing into your house like it does in Newfoundland. (laughs) (laughs) Not only air rushes in, rain, (laughs) snow. So anyone from Newfoundland who goes somewhere where there's not a lot of wind finds it kind of shocking. And uh, so it made it a little more bearable. If you dressed properly in minus 40, you you, you could manage to stay outdoors and and you got to be well covered so you don't get frostbite. But I'll tell you about an, another trip that I went on, uh, which, which was uh, probably the second trip, was to a community called Pangnertung. And Pangnertung is a little bit north of Iqaluit. But again, there's no roads between any communities in Nunavut. Every single community is, is isolated and cut off. There are, there are no deep water harbors in any communities in Nunavut, including Iqaluit, by the way. So it's a really tough place. Uh, the people there have tremendous challenges. And, 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 they, and they, do, they, they, do, they do amazingly well. And in Pangnertung, there's an inshore uh, Greenland halibut fishery, or turbot, as it's, it's called. And they, they harvest about 500 tons of Greenland halibut through the ice. And this, this, is, this is an absolutely fantastic industry because it is, it, it is the fishing industry with the lowest carbon footprint in the world. I mean, you don't even need a boat you, you go out on, on the ice with your snowmobile, uh, cut a hole, 
in, in four to seven feet of ice, which I can tell you is no easy feat. And then you put a line down up to a thousand feet. And they've got this special kite that allows the line to, to, to go way down under the ice and allows you to have two or three lines without getting them tangled because the kite spreads them apart. And you have about 100 or 150 hooks on one line. And when I went up there on this first trip, there was a father and son team out there fishing on the ice. And they'd taken a little uh, akamatik with a hut on it, a little kerosene stove uh, that they sleep in because they'd stay out on the ice till they, till they caught enough to, uh, to bring back to the plant. And these guys had a hand, uh, hand winch that they're turning with their hands to, to haul up a thousand foot uh, line that, that could have uh, 20 or 30 turbot on it. And then hauling them in and then they're uh, doing a little processing, gutting the fish there, putting it in the tub. And when they get the tub filled, they get back in the snowmobile and take it into town. And so, you know, compared to fishing in a boat, um, this is really an environmentally sound, friendly way to fish. You're only catching the turbot on the line. You might catch a little bit of bycatch uh, on your hooks, but in, in this particular area, uh, it's mostly turbot. And uh, it's a beautifully fresh product, as you can imagine. It's, it's caught by hand. Now, most of them also have haulers. They have a little, a little generator and they're hauled up and that's a lot more efficient. But again, some guys do it by hand, bring this product back, processed in Pangnatung. And then the, the, the really hard part is it has to be flown out um, which is where the, where the cost uh, goes up. And that is, there's a business problem that I really wanted to help solve. It's very expensive to fly a frozen uh, seafood product from Pangertung to Iqaluit to uh, Ottawa to Montreal, then to truck it to Halifax, and then it gets shipped around the world. And so, you know, there, there are solutions and logistics uh, um, challenges still, still to overcome, but... Uh, I just, I fell in love with this as a business model. It's never going to make a ton of money, but it's going to make enough to keep a community like Pangertung. Mm -hmm. Pangertung already does quite well. Thank you very much. They don't need me, but uh, there are subtle improvements, I think. And I also, uh, I'd love to help make Pangertung work in other communities. And, and I shouldn't say it's my idea. Uh, you know, lots of, of very qualified people are working on this. Uh, there are projects underway. And I just wanted to join in and to be able to help in, in any way I could. So that's where um, I moved from, you know, consulting on the PR side to the business side. And another thing uh, I learned at CHC Helicopters was, was, was along the lines of, you know, don't take no for an answer, but also, and back to journalism, don't be afraid to ask the question. So I, I asked, you know, can I, um, can I work in, in development, community development, none of it. And, and the answer was yes. So my title went from communications to communications um, and economic development, or none of it economic development. And I became, uh, there was no one else doing it with Baffin Fisheries because it was not core to the fishery. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, my job expanded, and, and actually most of the focus went to helping the none of it communities uh, and, and helping, like I said, the already uh, you know, brilliant people who are working on this help, help make it happen. And that's, that's how I got out of communications and Baffin Fisheries and, and into the business side in the north. Chris, uh, I just want to jump in there. I listened to this story, and, and it honestly, you've just articulated methodology of fishing that I've never heard anyone talk about. Uh, what I love about what you're saying is there's potential for new ideas in all of rural Newfoundland. What you're learning here, not you know, not bringing that particular type of fishing, but there's so much 
people thriving in remoteness is what Alan and I've been talking about. And, and Newfoundland needs this kind of conversation right now. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and, and Jerry, I'll bet you there are people <clears throat> with answers out there, people who work in the fishery and and, uh, and have lots of answers. So back to uh, what Alan was saying about listening, I think uh, there's a lot of people who could be listened to and, and can help bring some of these ideas to the table, right? There's, there's, there's so many um, people with great ideas out there, and just getting them into action is, is a little bit tricky. And uh, so, perseverance is important. Yeah. So, Chris, tell us now about Baffin Fisheries. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear about that. Okay. Yeah, there's a bit of a dark side of that, but I got involved. So I got involved uh, quite heavily in the business side of it. And because I was started traveling to none of it a fair bit, I, uh, I got closer to, the, to the, uh, the board, the directors of the board. And luckily, I was invi invited to board meetings. And I got to know some of these great uh, board members who are also fishermen or hunters and trappers. And they're out on the land, right? They're, they're really out there. Uh, and their board members as well. And, and then this is where the bit of the dark side comes into Baffin Fisheries. We started to hear rumors about you know, things not, not, going, not going well uh, back in St. John's and maybe some uh, money not being spent where it should. And uh, I, remember, I remember clearly the, the, day, the day it started. It was a Christmas party at Baffin Fisheries in 2016 and heard uh, there's a group of, of people that at the Christmas party who I didn't know. So it was a staff party. We only had a dozen employees. So to find a half dozen people you didn't know was a bit odd. And my, my wife is perfectly bilingual and there were these, these workers from Quebec were at the party. And uh, I speak a little French when I have a couple of beer in me. So we were, we were chatting <laughs> away at the Christmas party. And, and one of the guys from Quebec said, uh, he said he loved working for Baffin Fisheries. What a great employer. And, and I thought, you know, this is strange, you know? You know, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm uh, building a house in Winterton. And so this is when I heard something that was rather shocking, that, that someone was employed by Baffin Fisheries was building what turned out to be a private residence for the uh, former CEO. in <laughs> So, you know, this, this is go going back to my asking questions. I, I started to, to dig into this to see what was up and learning my lesson about not, not doing things without knowing everything and knowing what the outcome is be is going to be and having a plan B uh, I didn't I didn't want to jump to any conclusions so um, I, you know and the other thing that I felt was uh, was the right thing to do is go to the source go to the CEO and ask about this and go to the board of directors you know in a subtle way and uh, so I was told a couple of different stories that just didn't quite add up so I encouraged the shareholders the board members to seek additional financial information to ask the CEO for all the finances, and I, I said to the CEO, why don't you give the board all the financial information, you know, give, give them uh, every bit of, go drill down, and, and then, they'll, then they'll be more satisfied, and they, because they were, they were listening to me, and they were asking the CEO for more information, and, uh, you know, as you know, it was a very busy company, uh, there's a lot of fish to catch, there's three vessels to run, and there's the Northern Project, so this sort of sat idle for a while, and, you know, I was looking for, you know, a smoking gun, I wanted to, if I was going to do anything, I had to have evidence if there was something really going on. And so I remember one day um, when I started as a bath and fishers, my first office was, was actually a closet, a server closet, this little dark <laughs> closet that was overheated because of the servers. And uh, I thought, geez, if I go in the server room, the, the financial files are probably there on the server. And uh, 
so I went, the door was always locked and I, nobody would give me the financial information. So I actually got this crazy idea. I would, I would get a stepladder, climb through the tiles and get into the server room. I didn't know <laughs> if it was appropriate, but I, I had pretty good evidence that there was something going on that shouldn't be. And lo and behold, I go to the door and I just tried it one last time and it was open. And I go to the main server screen and it says, uh, you know, test ongoing. So everything was, um, was not password protected. So I grabbed the USB stick. I downloaded all the financial files and uh, <laughs> decided I was going to find out what was really going on. And long story short, I found the smoking gun in a file that had all these expenses for the house in Winterton uh, filed under a project in Pond Inlet. And I guess I was the right guy at the right time. I was the one guy who knew all about the projects in Pond Inlet. I had spoken to the construction workers in Quebec at this Christmas party. And I knew that these were not the right expenses for the Pond Inlet project. So, oh. so that, that's the tale of espionage. Oh. Uh, that's an interesting twist. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bit of a dark twist. Um, yeah. So I did, uh, I was able to, with the file, I was able to communicate to the, uh, the board members who, um, you know, were naturally shocked and wanted to call a meeting and, and take action and get to the bottom of this. But of course, when, when it's happening at the top level, you got to have a plan. So I needed lawyers and accountants uh, on, on the ground in St. John's ready to take action if the board took action. Again, has to go through the board, the board, the shareholders, their company. Um, so another story uh, that relates back to journalism, I got the call from the board. They were going to have a meeting on, um, it, it was September 2017. And I was going to fly to, fly to Nunavut, uh, on a Tuesday or something and the, the meeting was on a Wednesday and this was I think this was the Friday before and I needed a lawyer I needed a lawyer to be ready to review this stuff to be ready um, to, to take whatever action was required and I remember driving I was driving in St. John's and I was trying to think who do I know who, who, who do I know uh, who's a lawyer I had one lawyer lined up who had been uh, suggested to me and he was out of town I couldn't get through to him this was a lawyer who had helped do some preliminary work. So I, I needed a lawyer and I thought back, uh, Jerry, to my journalism days. I remembered a lawyer who had uh, given me a great story on, on a guy who had um, committed an insurance fraud. And uh, he, he was just, for lawyers to give journalist stories was, was kind of rare, but he, he was very helpful, laid it all out to me, explained things to me in words I could understand. So I was driving across town. I, I, I figured I had to find a lawyer you know, within the next hour. Yeah. So I was on my, my headset on the phone and I called Susan because I couldn't even remember his name. And I said, <laughs> Who is this, this lawyer? <laughs> but as I was asking, his name occurred to me. Yeah. So I did the old, uh, uh, pulled over, did a Google search, called him up, called his office, right? He's <clears throat> expecting to hear from the secretary. He answers the phone. <laughs> and I'm driving home. I'm now 20 minutes from my home. I said, you know, told him briefly what's happening. Can you help me out? He said, well, let's meet for a beer. It was five o'clock by this time at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> so we met for a beer in my backyard. And uh, <laughs> he agreed to take it all on on spec because, of course, the board hadn't approved anything yet. I couldn't expense things yet. And so he agreed to look at it all, take it all on, be ready to uh, take action. Mm -hmm. and, uh, sure enough, uh, back at the board meeting, I had the smoking gun, I had the financial statements that showed what was going on, presented to the board. The board made a vote to immediately launch a forensic audit. 
I'd also lined up a forensic auditor through a few accountant uh, contacts of mine. Um, and again, I, I, I made sure to have the accountants completely third party and recommended by, by somebody else in a publicly traded company. So there was no conflict there. And they were all ready to go. So we, um, you know, the board voted to suspend the management team, uh, bring in the, start the forensic audit and the lawyers the next day. And uh, that's when it all happened. And uh, cut a long story short, the forensic auditors came in. And, and so we sort of knew where the files were. They were there about 40 minutes. And the, the, the guy um, who's the top forensic auditor in Atlantic Canada came back after 40 minutes and said, we've got it all right here. You know, you're right. We can demonstrate it. We can demonstrate to the board. And um, it's time to uh, basically shut things down for a bit. Wow. So that, that's, an, that's an interesting journey for, the, uh, for Baffin Fisheries. Um, that's now in the wake, I'm assuming. Uh, where's the fishery now? What, what, what direction is it heading? What are they involved in? Well, you know, to the board's credit, they were able to move very quickly and, uh, and put that behind them, which was very difficult for the board and, you know, shareholders, I got to say, uh, and full credit to the board members to move forward. Uh, because at that time, the company wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't on solid uh, footing, if you will, uh, because of the, some of the things that have been neglected. So, uh, you know, thinking again, back to uh, Craig Dobbins' advice, surround yourself by, uh, with, with the best people you can. We recruited a fantastic um, chief financial officer, uh, who was really brilliant? Um, we 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 took uh, we took the, the guy who was the head of sales, very loyal. We, he became chief operating officer because he's an absolutely fantastic people person, and, and also loves to uh, to listen to the experts. and uh, and And the company had some really brilliant people on the vessels. So the first the first real thing we did is make sure the vessels are in great shape. And we've you know we relied on our chief engineers and our captains and our factory bosses and our deck bosses. To, to provide the input we needed to keep those vessels uh, running. We were right in the middle of a refit over in Norway on two vessels. So we got, we got the vessels done and ready. We had a, we had a great season. But um, one of the major challenges is that uh, one of our trawlers is 33 years old, now 34 years old. And uh, that's an aging vessel that constantly needs attention. So the company needs a new vessel. So we work with the shareholders. The shareholders are very keen to get a new vessel. And that is the major project right now. We are actually looking to build what I expect to be the, the largest, most modern uh, multi-species trawler in Canada. I mean, not just in Nunavut, not just um, in the Atlantic, but in, in all of Canada. And this is a really a, a, a credit to the, you know, the Inuit shareholders who, um, who have, have worked with the management team to allow this to take place. We, we, we strengthened the company again with, uh, with Glenn, our great CFO in place, made sure to take care of the basics first. So uh, we made sure we have very strong financials because if you're ever going to a bank and looking for $60 million, you know, you've got to have three years of solid financial statements yeah. and a great team in place and, and great rapport between the board and the management team. Uh, so we, we made sure that was, was all in place. And we've now gone through the process of having uh, the three top stern trawler design companies in the world provide preliminary bids. And I'm actually heading to a Callaway on uh, on Monday, Pangatung on Tuesday for a board meeting where we're going to sit down and select the final uh, bidder to, to start moving forward on this uh, really advanced, um, this green ship we're building uh, for Northern Canada. And um, I, I think it's a fantastic project for all of Nunavut. That's incredible. A ship built in Canada or built elsewhere? Where 
No, unfortunately, uh, yeah, it's not going to be built in Canada just because the cost uh, yeah. will, will be exorbitant. And, and nobody really builds stern trawlers. They're a very yeah. specific vessel. They're built in, uh, in, in Europe, in, say, Norway and uh, Spain. Um, but if you build them in Europe, they're about 15 to 20% more expensive than the real leading shipyards, which are in Turkey, yeah. uh, Vietnam, and, uh, and then some Eastern European shipyards as well. So we're going to choose the design company and the shipyard uh, together and hopefully have something to announce in the next, uh, in the next few months. Well, that's Chris, yeah, is that ever? Uh, when, when would uh, a ship like that potentially be launched and put in the water? Well, the timeline is about two months to negotiate the shipyard contract to get all the details and the hundreds and hundreds, up to 500 drawings, <clears throat> engineering drawings required, figured out. And then uh, 24 to 26 months, you know, maybe 28 with COVID to actually build the vessel. So yeah. two and a half years, we should, be, uh, we should be ready to launch the vessel. That's a very wow. exciting time for so the uh, the fish are caught on board, processed on board. Yes, and then all everything processed on board, um, and then where do you uh, where do you dock to offload? Well, that's a great question for Nunavut because I, I alluded to earlier no ports in Nunavut. Now, what a challenge for a territory, right? But we cannot land our trawlers anywhere in Nunavut, uh, and and nor are there any ice free ports you know, even for six months of the year, you know, over in Greenland, uh, just right across the Davis Strait, they've got multiple year round ports because right. of the, the Gulf Stream, right? Yeah. So uh, we're stuck. We land in, in Bay Roberts or, or right in St. John's. We have all our vessels in St. John's Harbor right now. And that's why we have a major office in St. John's instead of a Callaway. Uh, just because of geography, we, we, we've got to land mm -hmm. down here. And as do the other Nunavut companies as well. Is there a is it, uh, so go ahead, Jerry. Uh, just a question. Uh, I know uh, Ocean Choice International launched the MV Calvert. Is the ship you're talking about anything like that? Because uh, that one is certainly something. Yeah, our ship will be, um, will be a little bit bigger than that. Uh, wow, bigger than that. That's huge. Yeah, it's, it's a big vessel, and we're going to probably go a little over 80 meters. And the reason, the reason we have to, or it makes sense to go over 80 meters, is because of where we fish. So the Nunavut adjacent waters go up to 72 degrees north. And, um, and that's where we fish, you know, anywhere from the south of Baffin Island to the, to the north uh, of Baffin Island. And it takes, uh, it can take uh, six or seven days to get to the fishing grounds. So imagine you're steaming that far to get to the fishing grounds. You know, you want to, you want to catch as much fish as you can. So you minimize the number of trips in a year. Yeah, and, and therefore you reduce the number of seven-day sailings. You reduce your fuel consumption, your CO two emissions, and your you know your costs. So we're we're probably looking for a cargo hold that will hold uh, between eleven hundred, eleven fifty, maybe twelve hundred metric tons of Greenland halibut. And so it will be um, it will be a little big, bigger, and that's why it may well be the biggest in Canada. I think even Canadians don't understand the geography. Seven days sailing to get to your fishing ground. That's quite well, a distance. Al, Al, you know what? I actually did a geography degree. While you were talking, Chris, I had to go into Google. I had to go into Google and actually look at it. It's, it's so far north. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I, I want to go back to the Greenland thing. I, I'm led to believe 
that Greenland in terms of ports and infrastructure and the like are much, much more developed, much more uh, developed than that side. Is there a relationship with the Kingdom of Denmark to use uh, the ports in Greenland uh, to maybe come alongside and offload? Or, or, or is that something that's just out of the, uh, out of the <clears throat> equation? And the reason I say that is Canada and Denmark and Greenland, they have this very, very unique relationship as it relates to the Arctic. And, and I wonder, does that find its way outside of defense circles and environmental circles and into industry of yours? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we land right now, uh, because our vessels aren't so big, we land in Greenland for almost 50% of our trips. So I mentioned Bay Roberts. But uh, when, we're, when we're busy fishing turbot, to save time, uh, to save time, we will land in Greenland, offload there, and then go back to the fishing grounds. We'll land in Nook. We also have uh, one of our vessels is a fixed gear vessel, and it lands in Nook or Sisamut every trip all year round. Um, it's a very slow steaming ship. And so it can't possibly return. It's a smaller vessel. Uh, it's got to land there. So it goes across the international uh, boundary and, and lands in Greenland. We've got great relationships with the uh, um, people working there. Uh, I, I got a chance to go to Greenland, actually, <clears throat> to, to go on one of her vessels. <clears throat> and, and, and now i got to tell you this story if you got a minute. Sure. I think we you know do. I, I will say, uh, while you're talking, I've introduced something to Gale Force Winds. I said, why don't I share the map while Chris is talking about this? There so it is, yeah. we'll, we'll see how that turns out on the recording. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead, Chris. So how, how I got to, uh, <clears throat> to Greenland. Well, I guess because I got CEO by my title, I, out of the blue, I got this invitation to a Bank of Canada AGM in St. John's. And I, I, Jerry, I used to go to these things uh, as a reporter, right? And, and yeah. all the reporters would sit at a table with the reporters and, and listen. But now I'm sitting at a table with board members from the Bank of Canada. And, and this is a fantastic experience. And uh, you know, I kept looking around thinking, geez, they must, must have made a mistake with the email. <laughs> These people, the chairman is up there speaking to us. And one of the, uh, one of the women on the board, you know, knew I was from the fishing industry. She said, oh, maybe you'd be interested in, in a program that, I, that I'm involved with. It's called the Canadian Leaders at Sea Program by the Canadian Navy. And this was, I think, a Thursday night. And, uh, and she said, would you be interested? I, absolutely. I said, I, I'd, I'd be more than interested in this. So she, she said, I'll send you an email. So I expected to hear something in a couple of weeks' time, maybe. And the next morning, there was an email. And I replied to it, said I was very interesting. At the end of that day, Friday, I got a call from, uh, from Craig Robichaud, I think is his name, saying, we'd love to have you. How about joining the... Uh, HM, uh, HMCS uh, Ville, Ville de Quebec on a trip to, to uh, Nook, Greenland. <laughs> so talk about coincidence. This trip to Greenland was coinciding with our vessel landing in Greenland. Oh, wow. So, I mean, how many people get this opportunity? You know, long story short, I, I, I got into the program. I got on board the, uh, the vessel, frigate, which was absolutely unbelievable. The, the, the Canadian Leaders at Sea program is fantastic. I mean, it, they don't treat you special. You're in a, in a room with a bunking with uh, 12 other uh, snoring uh, men, shall we say? <laughs> and uh, and they, they show you every aspect of the vessel on the way over and, and more on that later. But I'm on this vessel for seven days, six or seven days to get to um, Greenland. They didn't go full speed, of course. They land, the, the Nook Harbor is pretty small, right? I get off the vessel in Nook, and there 
across the dock is the Anukshuk, our fishing vessel. And not only that, there were three vessels in the port at this particular part of the port at the time. In between the two is this, this massive 68-foot uh, sailing expedition boat that a friend of mine happens to be skipper of. <laughs> no. This is a guy I met in St. I'm, uh, I'm showing Nook on the map here right now. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so that's where we were. So this is a guy I met in Newfoundland because he sails around the world, and, and he ended up staying with us for a couple of months, and uh, he happened to be in, in Greenland at the time. So I visited him. I got off the, uh, the frigate. I got on the, uh, the Anukshuk, and I went to go uh, on, a, on a fishing trip that took me back to Baffin Island, and I got off in Baffin Island uh, a week or so later in a community called Kikatarjuet. And, you know, for all this to come together, boy, that's, that's an incredible coincidence. That's, was, an, that's an unbelievable story. Wow. Yeah. That's like the trains, planes, and automobiles of the North. <laughs> Tell me about the Canadian Leaders at Sea experience for you. Well, I, I got the, the first thing I say is, is the leadership in that, in that uh, name of the program there. You know, they try to invite people who maybe, I guess, um, will help them spread the word about it. But the real leadership I saw, Alan, was, was on the vessel. The captain's name, um, I looked it up last night, I'll be honest, uh, Captain Michael Eelhart. He was incredibly young to be a captain of a, of a Canadian warship, really. Uh, maybe he just looks young, but he seemed incredibly young to me. But very, very, again, he had Chris, all those... Uh, Chris, everyone's starting to look young to us now. <laughs> 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 but what really blew me away was uh, this was a training, uh, obviously not a mission, right? When they bring uh, yeah. civilians on board, it was a training trip. But he really let everyone um, do the job they were training for. So the captain was there, but in an absolute relaxed, confident manner. Remember, we were, we were steaming along, and someone on the radar said, uh, Captain, there's a, a, a large iceberg, uh, 10 kilometers, whatever it was, uh, you know, north, northeast. And so there was a woman who was uh, at the helm as, uh, I guess, acting uh, uh, captain or navigator or helmsman, whatever she was. And uh, so he just, said to, he just said to her, okay, we've got some time. Plot a course to the, uh, to the iceberg. Let's, let's go have a look. And, and then he didn't sit watching. He, he left. He had faith in her and he trusted her. And she was very young, um, you know, on the bridge, controlling the bridge at this time. And I was just really amazed by that. To, to see them uh, uh, give someone that opportunity. And I'm sure he was watching, had people watching to make sure it was all safe. But, you know, you just don't see uh, a lot of uh, captains give their young recruits that much uh, confidence and responsibility. But then, you know, on the trip, I realized every day was spent practicing and doing drills and doing them again and doing your firefighting response and, and, and doing your, your emergency procedures and, and uh, hard turn practices. So these people may not have been, uh, you know, may not have that many years at sea, but they had, they've been given lots of chance and experience to do everything. There were no idle moments on that vessel in the six days, I can tell you. Yeah, it's amazing how those teams work together. Back to your, your captain's, uh, your, your explanation of how the calm the captain was, but that goes back to Craig Dovin's philosophy of surround yourself with really smart people and then trust them, right? And that's exactly, I would suggest, what the captain was doing there. He had a lot of good people around him and he had a lot of faith in them and they had a lot of faith in him. Um, but it's amazing on board a Canadian warship to watch the whole thing function as one unit. It's like a living, breathing thing. And it's, and leadership 
in those settings comes from all directions. You must have had some great conversations with the junior sailors as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what they did. They mixed us. They, you know, they would split our, um, our mess times or uh, whatever you call uh, lunch and dinner and so on with, um, with the able seamen and, and sometimes with the uh, middle officers or with the brass. But you'd meet everybody every day. There were three meals and you'd be with a different group every day. And uh, yeah, we, we would sit alongside the, you know, the regular sailors, the young recruits and uh, chat freely with them. There was, uh, you know, there were no restrictions on who could talk to who and say what. And it was fantastic. Uh, I even, I, you know, I even got my hair cut by a guy who was on, on board there and uh, was doing haircuts as a sideline. <laughs> I think I was the only, the only person on the, on the team there who trusted the, 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 the naval officer to cut his hair in the, in the <laughs> Navy style. <laughs> tell me about the, uh, tell me about the uh, Baffin Fisheries vessels. Who are the crew on those? Where do the, where do the crew primarily come from? Okay. So that was, yeah, that was a very interesting transition to, to go from this uh, Navy vessel with uh, over a hundred people on it to, uh, to the fishing vessel with 28. And, uh, and, and the fishing vessel is incredibly, uh, incredibly busy. Those guys work, 12 hours a day, seven days a week for the entire trip. And our mandate is to hire as many uh, Nunavumia, as many people from Nunavut as we, as we can. And it's very difficult uh, because, you know, to be a captain, for example, on a large vessel, you pretty well have to have grown up on the sea. In, in Newfoundland, you, you started with your family boat. You, you maybe worked with your uncle on a 65-footer. Um, you went to the Marine Institute. You, you did your courses and so on. And in, in Nunavut, they don't have that opportunity. Um, so we're trying to train the people there uh, to become officers on vessel. But right now, most of the, the people from Nunavut are working in the factory and on the deck. So you've got these uh, really super hard workers um, in those positions from Nunavut. About half of the guys are from Nunavut on our vessel. We're, we're of course, trying to increase that. We've had 75% of the, uh, the deck and factory are Nunavut workers on some trips. And uh, the, the other crew um, are from Newfoundland and they're graduates of the Marine Institute for the most part. And, and I mean, talk about hard work. I tried to spend a few hours on the gut line with the turbot and you got this conveyor belt coming. And, you know, for Baffin Fisheries, it's a private company. Every dollar it makes comes from those fish that, that are caught and processed on board or shrimp. And that's it. Like, that's the source of revenue. There's no magic federal funding or anything like that to keep Baffin Fisheries going, to buy a $70 million vessel uh, to keep the fleet going. And, and every fish is actually handled multiple times by hand. So they're on the gut line. You know, you're, those are the guys who drive the company. And you got guys from Pond Inlet and Pangatung, and they're, they're on the gut line gutting these fish and cleaning them and inspecting them, putting them in the next part of the line. And that's what, that's what drives Baffin Fisheries. And I'm so fortunate to have those guys in the company because I wouldn't be able to be here doing this without those guys doing that hard work. And uh, it was a real eye-opener. I, I wouldn't last... Uh, 12 hour days on that vest. I'm going to try it again, try to last a little longer, but I, I was also not very good at it. <laughs> Chris, okay. uh, you know, it can, hear, it can hear in your voice the respect that you have for the community that you seem to have adopted as a second home for a young man growing up in Ottawa and spending a lot of time in, in St. John's. It's, uh, you know, what, what stands out the most to you uh, for the people that you're working with, those people on those lines, the people in the communities, what what stands out for you? Well, I guess there's a, there's a few things, Jerry. One, one is just how hard life is in Nunavut, right? 
when you talk about no roads, no, no, no ports, uh, no infrastructure, it's, it's extremely expensive. And so I gave the example of the, of the fish, a natural resource that's bountiful, but the, you know, the expense of getting it off is so high that it, you, you can't really make a living. So it's very hard. For a lot of these guys, the only opportunity they have to make a living or to, to, to earn money is to work on the, uh, on the fishing vessels. But if you think about it, if you grow up in a small community that has no roads, um, very limited and expensive uh, air travel, no ports, you're going to stay in that community. So these people are very anchored. Family is huge. Getting out on the land is huge. The community is huge, uh, even compared to Newfoundland, where community is strong, and Atlantic Canada, where it's very strong, even more so in Nunavut. So to then have these people leave their small towns, sometimes for the first time, and they've, they've got to go for two to three months work offshore in a tough environment. It's a huge uh, transition and full credit to these guys uh, who do it, right? Um, so, it, you know, it, it just shows how hard uh, some of them are willing to work, but how difficult it can be because once you get trained and you get pretty good at it, then other job opportunities come out. And let's face it, being away from your home for three months on a fishing boat working 12-hour days is probably not going to be the uh, yeah. you know, top job. Luckily, you can make a bit of money. It's uh, it's hard work for sure. Uh, it, listen, it sounds exciting, and the way you describe it, I can I can feel your passion for the company. In fact, I feel your passion for every cup, every little, uh, every turn in your career. It's it's remarkable. Tell me what the future of Baffin Fisheries looks like. What's in that? What's what's over the horizon? A new ship for sure. What else? Yeah, that that's a great question because. The new ship is only one side of it. We're, we're a fishing company, we harvest fish, but I really look at Baffin Fisheries as having two lines of business. And the other line is, is economic development in the Nunavut communities. And that's actually part of our mandate under the, the Nunavut Wildlife Management Board that oversees our quotas. So that's why we, are, we have projects in all the communities on this inshore fishing. And actually right now, this week, uh, we've, got a, we've got a group of guys we're, we're supporting and we're working with the government of Nunavut and the uh, Hunters and Trappers Association in, in a community called Kimarut. And they're going out char fishing uh, by snowmobile with comatics and they'll be drilling through the ice to fish for char in regions, regions that haven't been explored yet. And char is an absolutely beautiful fish, very valuable, quite abundant, particularly in South Baffin Island. Uh, and there's even quotas in place that aren't accessed right now because it's so remote. So, I mean, I just love the opportunity to work with some of the great people at, at the government of Nunavut and, uh, and, and, and the government, uh, and sorry, the HTA, the, gov the government of, really, the HTA um, in the community. And th those are the guys doing the work. Like, it's the local Inuit hunters and fishers who are the ones out on the land. And because of COVID, there's nobody. Normally, you'd send a DFO scientist uh, or researcher because they're doing sampling. They're, they're doing very special um, extractions from the fish to then put it in a, in, a, in a tag bag and send it back. There's a bit of a process. But it, they're doing it entirely without any uh, so-called scientists and researchers. These guys are researchers uh, and getting the job done in Kimmerup. So that, that's one, Alan. That's a, a great project. And we're looking at, we've got some smokers up there. We're looking at developing an export product, smoked char, very valuable product. We'd love right. to have little 400-gram packs that we can sell through the internet. Um, and then further north, Pond Inlet and uh, Clyde River, we're trying to uh, emulate what they do in Pangertung, which is really increase the, uh, the through the ice uh, Greenland halibut fishery. So um, project on the go in each of those communities. 
And we hopefully have guys going up um, in Pond Inlet in the next uh, month or so. And they'll do a test fishery. Um, again, uh, do some mapping, find the best locations. Bring, we, we, we've, we've helped them build a community freezer where they can process the fish. Uh, Baffin Fisheries has built an office building in Pond Inlet and Pangerton. Um, so they can have office uh, staff there that work for Baffin Fisheries and help with this inshore fishery. We're building an office and a, um, uh, a snowmobile repair facility in Clyde River this year. And, you know, I say we, but really it's the people on the ground. Baffin Fisheries is able to, uh, to help work with some government agency to, to get co-funding. We're able to put in some project managers, put the, uh, you know, the finance people behind it. You always need a, a chartered accountant with any project. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to get a CA education in none of it. So yeah. we're able to help, help there, manage the projects, help with logistics, right? You got to send stuff up from Montreal in the sea lift. You only get one shot a year yeah. uh, to send all your supplies up. So bigger communities might have two or three, but the smaller ones, only one sea lift a year. So there's these huge challenges and we, we can help. But the main goal is, of course, to, uh, well, once we get the buildings uh, built, we can hire office staff and do some more training. We, we want to put together some scholarships so we can get local guys to get a, a business degree or diploma, uh, get some financial uh, knowledge. You really need, uh, you know, financial knowledge to to apply for any federal funding program. You need to be able to run spreadsheets. So we want to help train the people to do that, get them going, and they'll they'll hopefully be running these projects themselves before too long. And and we'll have a little bit of a, you know, um, the goal is to have a viable uh, community business in all of the communities that own Baffin Fisheries and beyond. Wow, that is incredible, and that's incredible, and it's admirable work. That's that's it's so exciting to hear the direction that uh, Baffin Fisheries is going. Three vessels doing great work, uh, completely entrenched in the communities and growing. This is a, a true success. I'm uh, I'm so excited to have this conversation here today. Chris, we always ask our guests to leave the audience with one small takeaway, something to think about after this long cover. There's many great points in there. There's all kinds of snippets that can be pulled out. But to, to encapsulate it from your point of view, what would that one small piece of advice be? Yeah, you're right. There's a lot we've gone over here. But, uh, you know, if I, if I was to think about it, uh, again, because uh, because the situation I went through uh, with Bath and Fisheries and the great support I had from the board in, in helping uh, overcome that, um, I, I would have to say it's do the right thing and do it right. So uh, that that could apply to to developing the inshore uh, fishing business in none of it. It's absolutely the right thing. These these communities are the owners of the resource, and the company uh, owes it to them to to help them do what they need to do and what they want to do because we, we talk to the communities and what kind of business do you want the company to help you set up so it's do the right thing but but do it in the right way so you got to plan you got to prepare um and you got to rely on other smart people around you to get things done so maybe that's that, it that's great uh, a great piece of advice jerry your final thoughts well, Alan, you and I talked about thriving in remoteness. And frankly, when I think about remoteness, St. John's, PEI, you, uh, Chris, have brought us to even more remote communities that uh, I think we need to focus on more. But it's, it's even more than that. The, you know, the two focuses of your business, the economic development piece 
to me is what business is all about. Business is not just about profit. Profit is important, but building something that's sustainable for our livelihoods, no matter where we live, is something that's just, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Chris, for being uh, on uh, Gale Force Winds today. It's been a pleasure to listen to you talk. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks for letting me ramble on for so long. It's been really fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's just another episode of Gale Force Winds. And what a wonderful conversation uh, we've just had. We followed a gentleman through a very varied career and uh, wonderful uh, stops along the way throughout that career. But there was no doubt in my mind, every piece of uh, his career has built on the other to position him right now to help Baffin Fisheries and the good people of that organization progress in it in a very, very interesting way. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear about a company succeeding in remoteness like that and doing uh, such great things. And I can only imagine the caliber of the product that's being produced out of uh, Baffin Fisheries. So uh, I always leave the podcast with my own small takeaway, and that is the world needs more Chris Flanagan. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Jared. Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Winds. That's Gale Force Winds, W-I-N-S dot com.